Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And it just is one of the, one of the great mysteries of all time, I think, on uh, how that occurred. Some of the guys that we're going to talk about were my teammates when I was a rookie in 1964. Here, here we get into a relatively controversial subject. As far as being concerned, uh, I think you're a fool if you're not concerned. I'm Matt Mayoko, and this is the 49ers Insider Podcast on NBC Sports Bay Area. On March 19th, Dwight Clark made the announcement that those close to him had known for quite some time. Clark went public to reveal his condition. He has ALS. It was a crushing blow to those around the 49ers and to his many fans. Dwight Clark's leaping six-yard touchdown grab of a Joe Montana pass on January 10th, 1982, lifted the 49ers to their first Super Bowl appearance. The catch provided the 49ers with a 28-27 victory over the Dallas Cowboys in the NFC Championship game at Candlestick Park. Two weeks later, the 49ers won Super Bowl 16. Clark's play will always be the defining moment in the history of the San Francisco 49ers, but there is something else about the history of the organization that you may not know. Clark's announcement stirred the memories of three teammates from the 1960s three unique individuals from different backgrounds who became linked again more than 20 years later after they were inexplicably diagnosed with the same rare disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Well, uh, I just thought back to my rookie year. That's the voice of Dave Wilcox. I got drafted uh, number three uh, in the 64 draft, 1964, and uh, Got to play with the 49ers for 11 years. Some of the teammates that I had, there were three guys on that team. Um, uh, Gary Lewis, who was a rookie, same year I was. Uh, Matt Hazeltine, uh, um, who was a linebacker. And uh, a guy named Bobby Waters, who was a, a quarterback safety, I believe it was. Those three guys on one team. Uh, come, and I forget the years that they found out they had the ALS. Well, okay, let, let's start at the beginning. First off, what is ALS? So ALS is, stands for amyotrophic, which means lack of, of nutrition to the muscles, lateral sclerosis, which is uh, saying that in the spinal cord, the upper motor neurons are compromised. So it is a disease of upper and lower motor neurons. By upper, I just don't mean arms. It's the motor neuron that goes from the brain and connects in the back of the brain to uh, lower motor neurons that go to the tongue 
down to the spinal cord with lower motor neurons that go from the spinal cord out to the arms and from the spinal cord out to the legs. It's a progressive disease, so and it, it can course over a short period of time, compromising breathing, or it can go over long periods of time, decades. Stephen Hawking has had the disease for more than 50 years. So it's a very heterogeneous disease that's very different in different people. This is Dr. Stan Appel, and he's made researching and treating ALS his life's work. I am uh, chair of the Department of Neurology here at Houston Methodist in Houston. I'm uh, also the holder of the Peggy and Gary Edwards uh, Chair in ALS Research, and I'm co-director of the Methodist Neurologic Institute. I have been involved in ALS research since uh, the first patient I took care of in the mid-80s. On November 19, 1986, Gary Lewis, who played six seasons as a running back with the 49ers from 1964 until 1970, was diagnosed with ALS. He died less than a month later at the age of 44. Just a month after Lewis's death, Matt Hazeltine, a linebacker with the 49ers for 14 seasons beginning in 1955, died from the disease at 53 years old. Around that time, Dr. Appel began working closely with Bob Waters, who played with the 49ers in the early 1960s as well. Waters continued to coach at Western Carolina University for five seasons while battling ALS. He died on May 29, 1989, at the age of 50. So, Dr. Appel, I'm, I'm sure you remember Bob Waters. Uh, Very well. Yeah, yeah. So he was one of the three members of the San Francisco 49ers in the 1960s who were diagnosed with ALS at roughly the same period of time in the late 1980s. Uh, what do you remember about Bob, and, and what do you remember thinking about the disease at that period of time? He was a wonderful example of a great human being, tough, courageous, uh, one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet, and how devoted he was to his family, to his colleagues, to his football profession. It actually came out when he wanted to get everyone involved with solving the problem of the three athletes in the 60s who were diagnosed with ALS, and he led a single-minded, tough, courageous mission to get as much information as possible. So this, this beautiful human being uh, with a great soul and a great heart was such a fighter and such a courageous guy. And I remember that vividly about him. And I remember that we looked at a number of things, whether it was the DMSO that athletes were using. DMSO, or dimethyl sulfoxide, became popular in the mid-1960s as an anti-inflammatory, a topical liquid application that could penetrate skin and other membranes without damaging them to carry compounds into the body. 
whether it was the malorganite that was being used on the field as fertilizer, all of these things we looked into, and we never quite resolved why there had been three players amongst a small group that developed ALS. So now think about this. According to the ALS Association, approximately 6,000 people in the United States are diagnosed with the disease each year, and an estimated 20,000 people may be living with ALS in the United States at any given time. Yet, on this particular San Francisco 49ers team of the mid-1960s, three individuals out of a roster of approximately 40 men were diagnosed with the disease within about a year and a half. And that was more than 20 years after they were teammates. Yeah, and, and, and I'm still, it's still a very perplexing question on what happened and why. This is Ken Willard. He played with the 49ers from 1965 to 1973 as a running back. He ranks as the number four all-time leading rusher in 49ers franchise history. I remember uh, shortly after their deaths, there were many, many theories. Uh, there was a lot of conjecture about... Uh, the uh, uh, fertilizer that they had used on the field in Redwood City that we practiced on. And there were just any number of uh, things that people were bringing up, trying to figure out what the common denominator was. And, you know, what was so funny is those were three guys from absolutely different demographic data. Uh, here was Matt, was uh, a native Californian. Um, you know, uh, Caucasian. Uh, there was uh, here was uh, uh, Gary Lewis, who was black and uh, a native Californian, uh, had gone to junior college there, and here was uh, you know Bob, uh, who was a, so a southern kid from uh, from South Carolina. Uh, so the demographics were so different, and yet. All three of these guys wound up with ALS, and it just is one of the one of the great mysteries of all time. I think on uh, how that occurred. And I think there was some some talk about painkillers too at that point, right? Well, that <laughs> there's probably a lot to talk about painkillers and and things we took. Uh, my God, there were uh, any number of things. But I walked into the training room. And I saw all of these pills laying out. And I said, uh, they, you know, they were all brightly colored. And I asked our, our trainer, I said, uh, what are these for? And he gave me sort of a skeptical look, and he said, they're for you if you want them. And I said, oh, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> and I don't know what they were to this day, but... Uh, it was uh, it was not uh, you know it w it was a little different back then I would say. Okay, I know what you're thinking about a possible link that connects these football players to ALS, and we haven't discussed it yet. Dwight Clark brought it up when he announced he has a disease, and we'll get more in depth into that in just a few minutes. But first, I'd like you to get to know a little bit more about the individuals who were 49ers teammates and later died from the disease. 
Matt Hazeltine, was a Bay Area guy through and through. He attended Tamil Pius High School in Mill Valley and was a two-time All-American center at the University of California. He was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 1989. Hazeltine entered the NFL as a fourth-round draft pick in 1955 and became a two-time Pro Bowl selection at linebacker for the 49ers. Ken Willard remembers. My, uh, Matt was a fabulous guy, good-looking California guy. Uh, I remember he always had a tan, um, really a, a brilliant guy. You know, if you looked at him, you would not really know that he was an NFL linebacker because, of course, at that time, uh, not, not a lot of guys uh, lifted weights and did all those things that, you, that happen now. But Matt was uh, really a, a good-looking, uh, probably weighed 200 and five or 210 pounds and maybe six foot tall, but a great outside linebacker because of his, his mind more than anything else. The mental aspect of the game, and, and that's a point of Matt Hazeltine's virtues as an NFL player that Dave Wilcox really highlighted as well. I used to love to sit by him in the meetings and when we studied film and stuff because he would point out things. You know, I said, well, look, here, we're studying the film. Now, look at this guy. This is what's going to happen. And I said, how do you know that? He says, well, you know, uh, I, I think he told me one time, he says, well, you know, when you're real young coming into the league, you can run real fast and, you you know, you can get point A to point B, but you're not sure what's all happening. Well, he says, the older you get, you finally figure out what they're going to do the problem is, he says, because you can't get there quite as fast, so so you slow down a little bit as you as you age. But he says, so you know, you need to look at the little fine points, the the little tips where the the guard might be pulling because his hands placed in a different spot or something, things like that, or his feet are different. Uh, the, that was kind of the fun part of of working with Matt. There was another fun part of working with Matt Hazeltine for Dave Wilcox, and that involved their commute to Kezar Stadium on game days. I think it was uh, when the hippie generation was going pretty big during the 60s. Uh, we'd stayed downtown in, um, in uh, San Francisco the night before the game and drive out to Kezar Stadium, which is in Golden Gate Park. And I always drove. I don't know why, why I did that, but... And being a linebacker, I guess maybe linebackers took care of each other or something. But anyhow, we we'd drive down Hate Street, go to go to the game, and kind of see what what was taking place. Maybe that was our entertainment or something for the year, for the day. In 1987, Bill Walsh established the Matt Hazeltine Award, which is given annually to the 49ers' most courageous and inspirational defensive player. He played more seasons at linebacker for the 49ers than any other player in franchise history. Known for his durability and dedication, Hazeltine might be remembered more for being well-liked and well-respected. Ken Willard looks back fondly on his memories of Matt Hazeltine. Oh, absolutely. Everybody loved him. He was just a hail fellow well-met, and uh, I don't think there was anybody that really didn't like him and uh, uh, he, he was just a great guy. After learning his former teammate had ALS, Willard placed a call to Hazeltine's office in Palo Alto, where he worked in insurance. 
Willard said he spoke to Hazeltine's assistant, who told him that medical services had come to the office that day to care for him. And that was his last day he ever spent in the office. And don't, don't ask me why I was motivated to call him that particular day and why it worked out that way, but I never did get a chance to speak with him. And I just wanted to tell him, uh, you know, what a great guy I thought he was and how much I enjoyed being with him. Gary Lewis attended San Francisco's Polytechnic High School, which closed in the early 1970s. The school was located right across the street from Kizar Stadium. In 1959, Lewis led an upset over Lowell for Poly's final football championship. Lewis played junior college football at City College of San Francisco before finishing his amateur days at Arizona State. Fittingly, Lewis returned to San Francisco in 1964 as a sixth-round draft pick of the 49ers. His best season with the 49ers was in 1968. He started all 14 games and rushed for 573 yards while also catching 27 passes for 244 yards. Gary Lewis played through the 1969 season with the 49ers, then finished his career in 1970 with the New Orleans Saints. Ken Willard was his teammate for five seasons. Gary was a huge guy. He probably weighed, oh, he's probably, he was probably six, three and a half, six, four, 245 pounds and could run uh, maybe a four, five, 40. Uh, he was everything you could possibly imagine. Or, and certainly from a potential standpoint, um, you just thought that this guy may be the next great running back in the National Football League. So you're both running backs, and how much time do you guys spend with each other just talking football or talking about life? Well, we spent a lot of time together, and Gary was a, Gary was a great guy, a good, good teammate. Um, you know, like I said, he, I think Gary could have been one of the greatest running backs to play in the National Football League. Um, he's a San Francisco kid. Uh, for three or four years, it looked like he was just going to be, you know, a, a fabulous running back. And for whatever reason, things did not work out for him. In Bob Waters' professional football career, he is best remembered for throwing the first touchdown pass in NFL history out of the shotgun formation. That came when he was a rookie in 1960 with the 49ers, and he led the team to an upset over the Baltimore Colts, a team coming off of consecutive NFL championships. He split time at quarterback with John Brody and Billy Kilmer, and he also played safety during his four seasons with the 49ers. In his bio in the 49ers team publications during that time, it states that Waters planned a coaching and teaching career after his football playing days were over, and that's exactly what he did. 
he made his most lasting mark as the head coach of Western Carolina University from 1969 to 1988. He coached his final five seasons after being diagnosed with ALS. When he came to, to Western Carolina, did he talk much about his his NFL days with the 49ers? Oh, yeah. Well, he was a very unassuming guy. Never, uh, you know, you had to drag a lot of stuff out of him. But uh, I saw a lot of the clippings at his home and, you know, the pictures and so forth. And But, you know, he never really, unless you sit down and just uh, uh, push him, he would never really uh, talk a lot about his uh, career with the 49ers. It's, you know, I think it was a wonderful time for him. He really enjoyed it. This is Steve White. I came uh, to Western Carolina as uh, Bob Waters' sports information director in 1969 when he uh, was named our head football coach. And I worked with him for 20 seasons uh, until his uh, death in uh, 1989. White remembers Waters as a person who could absolutely crush a golf ball. But in the early 1980s, Waters started losing a lot of length off his shots. He knew something was not right. Just didn't feel strong, and uh, I was having some issues uh, with his um, legs uh, and his upper body, his arms and shoulders and so forth. But uh, never really thought a whole lot about it. You know, you just think about maybe age catching up with someone with an athlete sometime during the 1984 season is when he was diagnosed with uh, ALS. He coached uh, his last, uh, most of his, definitely his last season, the 88 season, and part of the 87 season, uh, he was in a wheelchair uh, part of that year. And he would have to, they would have to take him up the elevators, you know, this press box and actually wheel him in during that 88 season that he would be up off of the field. Waters aggressively pursued answers to explain how he and two of his teammates could get diagnosed with the same rare disease. According to the ALS Foundation, the incidence of ALS is 2 per 100,000 people. This is Dave Wilcox. I just remember when you know all this uh, started happening with this ALS stuff. I think Bobby reached out to all of us former teammates to try to figure out if you know if they were having some issues like that similar to what he was dealing with um and and i and and part of it was where we practiced in redwood city i asked his close associate steve white if bob waters ever expressed any opinion of why he developed als well, you know, they talked about the practice field there. At, I think at Redwood City is where the 49ers used to train. And uh, talking about, uh, you know, the the fertilizer they used on that field and, you know, the fact that two other of his teammates, you know, were, were, had ALS and so forth. You know, he was one of these guys that really didn't complain a lot. He never made a big deal out of it. But he was just, he wanted to find out. He wanted to be cured, first of all, but he also wanted to be able to help in the research in any way possible. Today, nearly 30 years after his death, Western Carolina plays its home football games on Bob Waters Field in Coloway, North Carolina. I spoke to Bob Waters' wife, Sherry, who told me that she is flattered that her late husband is so fondly remembered by so many people. Here is Steve White. Just a just a classy uh, uh, individual, a great football coach who 
it's just not your stereotypical coach. It wasn't a screamer, very quiet matter. Now, he, you know, he could get upset at times, but always was under control. Uh, just a class individual. ALS is commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. The popular New York Yankees first baseman was known as the Iron Horse. He took himself out of the Yankees lineup on May 1, 1939, after 2,130 consecutive games because his body could no longer function at a major league level. On the 4th of July that year, Gehrig delivered his memorable speech. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Lou Gehrig died less than two years later. There are documented newspaper reports from his time of incidents in which Gehrig may have sustained head trauma as a result of being hit by pitches, bad hop ground balls, and collisions on the base paths. The New York Times also referred to him as a battering ram football halfback in high school and at Columbia University. In 2010, a group of neurologists, physicians, and pathologists at the Boston University School of Medicine Center referenced Gehrig's history of head injuries and linked his conditions to CTE. Dr. Stan Appel said it was a major disservice when it was suggested that Lou Gehrig did not die of Lou Gehrig's disease. I mean, we had a bunch of patients calling up, and, and uh, I told them that this was sheer nonsense because they linked together, the group in Boston linked together chronic traumatic encephalopathy and ALS to say that the two go together and there is no evidence of scientific validity that would support that, none whatsoever. Uh, there have been many... Baseball players with concussions that never developed ALS. I want to get back to Dr. Appel and ask him about any possible correlation between playing football and developing ALS. But first, let's hear the perspective of Ken Willard. He lost some of his 49er teammates to ALS, so this strikes close to home. He is 73 years old, remains physically active, and resides with his wife in a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, where they've lived in the same house since 1975. He has thrived in his life after football. Even while he was playing football for the 49ers, he began working in the life insurance business to set himself up for his post-playing days. This is a topic that is of grave concern to him but he cautions against placing blame on the sport he played at the highest possible level. I, I still am waiting for somebody to put the correlation between the number of football players and the number of people who have been diagnosed with ALS and what's the percentage uh, as compared to the general public. And um, I would like very much to see that. I'd like to see the figures on what's the percentage of hockey players and soccer players as far as the, you know, the uh, uh, CTE and, and the other studies. Uh, it's a complex issue, Matt, and I, I really 
it would it would only be a guess to uh, con in our conjecture as to uh, uh, why this occurs. It certainly we do know that these are n noteworthy people, and uh, there are many people who have ALS or CTE that are not well known, and we never hear about them. Um, I think we have to be careful in making assumptions. I think there's no doubt that continual jarring of your brain is not good, but is it the factor? Is it the one factor? Uh, I don't know. Have you ever been concerned about yourself? Absolutely. I think everybody who plays the game, if, they, if they're intelligent at all, are concerned. You know, other than, uh, <laughs> than my wife saying, you know, that sometimes I act wacky, um, I've really been very fortunate, and, and I don't knowingly have any symptoms or uh, short-term memory losses uh, that concern me at this time. That is not to say that of course, I'm 73 years old. Um, when do you when do you start having the problems, and what is that related to? Is it related to age or the number of hits you had when you were young? Um, again, some people try to simplify this issue, but it's it's a very complex issue, and um, I I, uh, I think there's a lot of research that's yet to be done. Uh, and uh, as far as being concerned. I think you're a fool if you're not concerned. Uh, you think about the number when someone's asked me, I, I, I get this question a lot. Have you ever been knocked out? And I said, well, there are um, actually two times that I remember actually being out and uh, in, in coming to and not knowing what happened before. I said, but how many times did I see black? Thousands, hundreds of times, you know, when we used to wear suspension helmets. I mean, anybody that's ever played with a suspension helmet uh, knows the feeling of that, that kind of um, black or stars. And uh, so I'm no different than everybody else who's played. Um, I've had the same jarring injuries. Um, why do I not have ALS? Why do I not have the outward symptoms of dementia? I don't know. There is not a lot known, of course, or at least not a lot of certainties. Dwight Clark is among a handful of former NFL players who have stepped forward in recent years to reveal he is battling ALS. Steve Gleason, the former defensive back of the New Orleans Saints, is leading a very public fight while also attracting much-needed awareness to the disease. Dr. Stan Appel said there are no easy answers when it comes to trying to pinpoint a direct cause of Lou Gehrig's disease. 10% of the patients we see have a strong family history. Strong family history. That is one gene, and we've learned now in the last number of decades that there are more than 30 different unique genes that can give rise to ALS. But even if you don't have a strong family history in the 90% that don't have that, we've learned that it could be a multiplicity of genes that are contributing just as they contribute 
to height, intelligence, and many other things, but it's not the genes alone, it's the environment as well. So the way I like to put it is the genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger even when you don't have a single predominant gene that's giving rise to it. Is there evidence that in football players, that football players have a higher risk of ALS? Well, you know, here, here we get into a relatively controversial subject. In point of fact, there have been a number of studies that have claimed that the incidence of ALS uh, is 40-fold increased risk or four times higher than the general population. But the, the data is far from convincing from a scientific point of view. Uh, we know that uh, any sort of trauma uh, can be aggravating in a number of conditions. But whether trauma causes it, there is no evidence that trauma causes it. And therefore, there's no evidence in football players that trauma will cause ALS. Now, there are data that suggest that perhaps trauma, once you're going to get ALS or you have uh, ALS, that it can make it worse. And that data is still contested, but I'm a believer that trauma can aggravate ALS even if it doesn't start it. It's been more than 30 years since uh, Gary Lewis, Matt Hazeltine, and Bob Waters uh, developed ALS and ultimately died from the disease. Uh, on March 19th, uh, 49ers legend Dwight Clark announced that he also has ALS. And as part of the statement that he wrote a, a letter uh, to the public, he wrote this. I've been asked if playing football caused this. I don't know for sure, but I certainly suspect it did. I encourage the NFLPA and the NFL to continue working together in their efforts to make the game of football safer, especially as it relates to head trauma. When you hear that, uh, how do you react? Everyone thinks it's a very rare disease, but the ice bucket challenge and a lot of increased awareness tells us it's not as uncommon as we might think. What I say is, uh, it, it, uh, I'm sure Dwight Clark fits the mold that I'm describing, a courageous, tough, uh, wonderful, great human being. Uh, and I feel very strongly that we need to wage war against ALS, and we need the support of the NFL, we, as they have been supporting it recently. We need the support of everyone to determine factors that could improve the quality of life and length of life for our patients. But I don't think that the, the data, as I've cited it, really says 
that playing football causes ALS. But that doesn't mean, it uh, doesn't mean at all that it is something we should say, let's not study it. We need to study it. And what Dwight Clark is saying is right on target, namely, let's do everything we can to find the causes, to find the therapies that are meaningful uh, for him and for all present and future cases of ALS. We need that desperately. But I, I think it's important not for us to go off base and say that football causes ALS because the evidence is not there. Now, there's a, there's a lot of data that suggests that concussions can aggravate a variety of different conditions, especially dementia, things of this sort. Uh, many of the patients who have chronic traumatic encephalopathy are patients who paid professional sports. But you know, there's, uh, there's a quote sport where concussion is present in almost every case, and that's boxing. And in boxing, you know, there is an increased incidence. It's about 25%, but it's not 100%. So we have a lot to learn about the way in which football may be associated with ALS, but there's no evidence that playing football causes ALS. It was a moving experience to learn more about Matt Hazeltine, Gary Lewis, and Bob Waters during the research for this project. The late Ron Femright, a legendary writer for many years at the San Francisco Chronicle and Sports Illustrated, wrote a poignant piece for SI in August of 1987 on Bob Waters. That essay is entitled, The Battle of His Life. Thanks to everyone who contributed to this edition of the 49ers Insider Podcast, including two of the organization's all-time great players, Ken Willard and Pro Football Hall of Famer Dave Wilcox, for sharing their thoughts on Hazeltine, Lewis, and Waters. And a big thank you to the man who has spent the past 30 years searching for the answers to solve the mysteries of ALS. My name is uh, uh, Stan Appel. And Dr. Appel, learning more about ALS fighting ALS. Is that your life's mission? You got it. People said, when are you going to retire? And I said, I'm going to retire when someplace, someone in the world finds the series of magic therapies that can end this unfortunate and devastating horrific illness. I'm 83 now, still going. Thank you for your help because it's you know, there, there was a wonderful book that was written a number of years ago from Johns Hopkins called When Illness Goes Public. And it had a number of stories of diseases, whether it's Rita Hayworth's disease uh, with Alzheimer's, uh, the Lou Gehrig story, and it goes through these various stories. And it says when public figures will come out and will talk about their illness then lay people get involved and will be supportive. And that's truly what we need. We need that desperately for ALS and we need to continue to do it. And we need continuing research support through ALSA, MDA, and of course, NIH, the government. 
I also spoke with and exchanged emails with Sherry Waters throughout the making of this podcast for ALS Awareness Month. Her husband, Bob Waters, spent the final years of his life working hard to get answers and solve the mystery of how three teammates from the same San Francisco 49ers team of the mid-1960s could be diagnosed with the same rare disease. Sherry Waters passed along the following thoughts. I'm very sorry to learn about Dwight Clark's ALS diagnosis. I know how difficult it will be for Dwight and his family as they adjust to this news. Bob would be very sad to know that after all his efforts to seek information to help find a cure for this horrible disease, ALS continues to affect these good men. I know that Bob died believing that one day there would be no more ALS. I am still so proud of Bob for his courage and willingness to help others. I wish the very best for the Clark family. I'm Matt Mayoko, and this has been a very special edition of the 49ers Insider Podcast on NBC Sports Bay Area.